Hey Buds, welcome to Beyond Buds with Peoples. We go high and low to find the most interesting folks in cannabis. And this week, it's Eric Gopel. Eric is the CEO and co-founder of the Veterans Cannabis Coalition, and his mission is to get free weed to other vets. We talked about how he makes it happen and why it's so important. So Eric, you're a seven-year Iraq War veteran and CEO of the Veterans Cannabis Coalition, which is a self-funded nonprofit that aims to end cannabis prohibition and to also get the VA to research and develop cannabis-based treatment options. Anything I missed? No. I guess it would be more accurate to say I am, I am an Army veteran and served for seven years. I did not spend all those seven years in Iraq, thankfully. <laughs> Thank you. That is an important distinction. <laughs> yeah, no worries. <laughs> What inspired you and Bill to start the Veterans Cannabis Coalition? Right. So my co-founder, Bill Ferguson, also an Iraq war veteran, and I met in D.C. back in 2016. I was uh, just beginning my start at, you know, doing policy and uh, legislative work on Capitol Hill. And I met Bill through a veterans event. And Bill had already um, had been a founding member of the Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America and had already participated in lobbying for a lot of successful veteran-related pieces of legislation, the probably the, the, the crown jewel being the post-9-11 GI Bill, which is what enabled me to go to, to go to college, which is why I met Bill in the first place. That's the little serendipity sort of like great example of like how lobbying for change can actually bring that change about and create opportunities that might not have otherwise existed because if I had not have met Bill, if I had not spent time in D.C., would I have understood both the need and the way to start to address something that Bill and I both put together, essentially, which was the veteran suicide and overdose crisis, which has been commented on for many years now, which with the VA has been gathering data on directly for the last 15 years. You know, we knew that basically nothing, no interventions that the federal government or, you know, state and local governments or public health departments and things of that nature come up with, not, nothing seemed to be making a difference in the veteran suicide rates. But what we encountered, both as, pa- as cannabis patients ourselves and over the course of this work of the last few years and talking to you know now thousands of patients is there's a very similar story here of folks who you know veterans specifically who sustain some kind of trauma in the military and I like to say that you don't never have to go to combat for the military to traumatize you never have to leave this country leave your base for the military to traumatize you and you know there's thousands unfortunately, have examples of that, you know, from obviously the most horrific sort of outcome like Vanessa Guillen to your run of the mill, just, you know, injuring yourself in a training accident, but then coming away with what ends up being a lifelong uh, injury. You know, that's the military, right? It's a trauma generator. So when you exit the military, almost every veteran goes through some sort of transition. You know, they, they try to find something for themselves after the military. But an issue that constantly crops up is the physical and mental health issues that we mostly suppressed while we were in now start to bubble up after you get out, either immediately or in some cases, you know, decades afterward. And those issues, whether it's like PTSD or just chronic pain, impact your, basically your life, your trajectory quite a bit. And the answer to all those issues, when you go as a veteran or even as a non-veteran to, you know, going to the VA or going through private health, almost always it's, it's pharmaceutical in nature. There are, you know, non-drug therapies available, but those are few and far between. We have a this massive deficit 
of mental health professionals in this country. We don't have enough therapists. <laughs> you know, this is something that I've heard veterans speak to, which is, you know, I can get a therapist eventually, right? Might take me some weeks, right? Okay, but if, you know, if I get that therapist, what's the guarantee that they're actually going to be in the system, you know, in a year from now, right? Because, you know, the VA changes reimbursement rates, people come and go out of the system, out of the VA healthcare system as medical professionals, right? And of course, we're not even talking to the individual quality of care. You know, not every therapist is created equal, right? You know, and not every therapy is created equal or every therapy is suitable to every patient, which is, you know, and veterans often experience that in terms of, oh, well, I did, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, and then I did aversion therapy, you know, and then I did, you know, uh, this therapy, and then I had the hyperbaric chamber, and, you know, it's just everything after thing and thing, and doesn't, nothing, nothing ever really seems to help, right? Or it's just not the right combination of things. And that coupled with this sort of reliance on pharmaceuticals and particularly how veterans are treated. And I would say a lot of, a lot of non-veterans too, because if you as a civilian or a non-veteran basically come in and, and indicate for all the things that a, a veteran might, chronic pain, you know, let's say PTSD, depression, anxiety, you know, maybe sleep disorder, you know, something along those lines, you're going to, you're, you know, depending on your insurance, I guess, <laughs> and your doctor, you could just as easily walk away with a, uh, you know, a full box of pills, just like many vets do, just like many, most seniors do, right? And I think, and I think, if there's a probably comparable, like pharmaceutical use comparison to make, it'd be veterans and seniors. And a lot of veterans are seniors too, uh, so there is that. But you know, there's a lot of younger folks, uh, you know, under forty who are taking seven to eight different medications a day prescribed to them by you know VA or private health doctors for their conditions that stem from their military service. Sorry, and there's a long way to say that. Like in and all that cannabis, right? That was the bright line. That's shown through all these stories. It's like everybody's story was very similar. Trauma. This is the stand. You got the standard treatment. Standard treatment didn't work. You know that you didn't have any alternatives, though. Mm-hmm. Usually, in a point of jet desperation, someone, maybe a friend, maybe a neighbor, somebody hands them a joint or you know packs them a bowl, and all of a sudden it's like. And then I slept for the first time in like seven years, and it's and that is such a common and repeated experience that it's just, you know, it's that thing. It's like, okay, everybody says they want to do something about veteran suicide and overdose and cannabis is staring staring us in the face. Veterans themselves will tell you, this is the thing that helped them avoid that outcome, right? That so many other veterans end up at. And uh, and you see that reflected in a lot of state level cannabis reform. I'd say veterans in in many states have been at the forefront, uh, especially as patients, you know, pushing for at least medicalization, you know, of cannabis. And California is very much uh, the the genesis of the, a lot of that. You know, Dennis Perone, who's considered you know one of the pioneers and you know founding fathers of, of the cannabis reform movement in this country. Absolutely, Vietnam veteran, you know, member of the LGBTQ community. You know, and he took the message of compassion based on what he had seen with AIDS and cancer patients and how they had reacted to cannabis. You know, seeing how it had massively improved their quality of life, extended their life in many cases. Right, obviously. We all die, right? You're, and you're going to die from something. But, you know, as far as, you know, cancer and AIDS, right, especially, you know, pre the prophylactic prep drugs uh, that exist now for AIDS and HIV, right? Like these were death sentences sooner rather than later, right? But with cannabis, of course, a lot of people, there've been some medical medical research into this, but very little, right? And that, that's, that's and that's been the case, I think, from the beginning is that, you know, patients have led the way, you know, patients, you know, in, in our case, veteran patients, right, have have basically told us in their own words, in very similar words, you know, how this has helped them and in what ways this has helped them. And for us, it's now on us to basically carry that message forward and say, 
everyone talks a good game, right? Everybody likes to say they support veterans. Yeah. If you support cannabis prohibition, you are not supporting veterans. Like that's a very bright line we can draw uh, at this point. You know, I, I would say that extends to patients, right? Whether it's, you know, grandma with cancer or, you know, a child with epilepsy or a veteran of PTSD, right? Like cannabis, people use cannabis as a medicine, even if they don't necessarily uh, regard it that way, right? The cannabis doesn't discriminate. <laughs> the, can- the cannabinoids do their work regardless of what you think of them, right? That's what sort of elevates this beyond just anecdotal information. We have an actual physical understanding of how the components of this plant interact with our bodily systems, most specifically our endocannabinoid system, how the endocannabinoid system influences all of these other areas of your body from memory, right? Which is, you know, I have PTSD. I have used cannabis for years to basically suppress nightmares. You know, the background research supports that because it says, well, you know, use of THC specifically will shorten the time that you spend in REM. Rapid eye movement phase, which is generally where you uh, dream, right? So you spend less time in REM, more time in your deep, you know, slow wave sleep. You know, cannabis is the thing that has enabled me to, you know, I smoked for the very first time when I was 25, you know, changed my life, obviously. And, you know, it's been, you know, a journey since then of understanding just how it works for me and then understanding the plant, understanding how it works for others, and then getting a sense of, you know, how prohibition in all of these different ways negatively impacts all of us, and then how we go about rolling that back. The fight against cannabis prohibition isn't over. Join the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws to help legalize the responsible use of cannabis by adults, remove criminal penalties, and advocate for access to safe and legal cannabis. To learn more and find your local chapter, visit normal.org. That's N-O-R-M-L dot org. Cannabis prohibition is still on the books in a lot of states. There's no like automatic rollback of like state level prohibition just because the feds do it, right? It is still a 50 state fight at this point, And the fight is far from over, even in places as progressive and forward leaning as California. Mm-hmm. What do you wish the Veterans Cannabis Coalition could do, but hasn't been able to yet? Oh, get a law passed. That would be great. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that was, uh, you know, Bill and I, when we started, we we're like, hey, we know how we know how bills move. You know, we're, we're, we're <laughs> hip to schoolhouse rock. I mean, we, well, in reality, it's like what they're leaving out is uh, political contributions in that whole, <laughs> that all how a bill becomes a law thing. It right? was an optimistic portrait of it. <laughs> it was very optimistic. Well, I mean, but, but that, I mean, and it's, and that's what it is on paper, right? But of course, mm-hmm. what exists on paper versus how things operate in reality are very different. Uh, Unfortunately. And, and politics is, is, uh, is a great example of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, passing the law, you know, we, we've, we started off, Bill and I, working on uh, the VA Medicinal Cannabis Research Act. And that was the first bill, to our knowledge, and I've not been contradicted yet, uh, that that was the first cannabis reform bill to ever pass a congressional committee. And Bill and I helped. Yeah, well, I mean, but again, right, what, what passing a congressional committee is literally the first step. Well, I guess the first step is introduction. The second step is getting a getting a committee to, to mark it up and pass it. But that is just and that's but that's got to happen, you know, in both chambers and then you've got to go to a conference. And, the, you know, so it's like it could a lot of these bills turn into, eh, you know, like what's what's largely like a seven to ten step you know, process here. Um, 
and, and we were excited. You know, this was back in 2018. And uh, when that bill moved, especially under a Republican uh, committee chair at the time, uh, Phil Rowe. And then we then but then we got the saw. Excuse me. Then we got to see, uh, you know, see politics in action in this case. Right. Some backbencher Republican basically objected to it, which prevented uh, the bill you know, not publicly, of course, uh, but, you know, she, ex- you know, she expressed her, her, uh, her objection to the speaker, Paul Ryan at the time. And the only way that we knew that bill was going to move out of the house was under a rule suspension, which the only way that happens is basically you get the speaker to okay. It. That never happened. So the bill got out of committee, never made it to, never even got a vote. Right. And, you know, that, that was a, uh, and this was like, this was not a, a revolutionary bill by any stretch, right? Like it does the very minimum of what should, what the VA should be doing, or it basically compels the VA to do what they should be doing at the very minimum, which is cannabis research. Currently they have one study going and they were, and they point to that as being adequate. <laughs> it's like, we've got one CBD study for PTSD going at UC San Diego. Therefore we're conducting cannabis research. Therefore you shouldn't be telling us to do that by law. Oh, uh, that, that has been, <laughs> that is now their argument. Like the, the argument has shifted over the years and it's, and at first they started with a lie back in 2018 and the, and the, uh, committee chair and ranking member, uh, Tim Walls who's now governor of Minnesota called out the VA secretary, David Shulkin at the time and said, uh, you know, cause the VA had come back to the committee and said, the VA can't even do the research and to which, you know, it's, that's a lie, right? Schedule one research or, you know, cannabis is schedule one drug, the gov, you know, fed, uh, with DA licensing, uh, you know, licensed researchers can conduct research on cannabis and other Schedule One drugs. It's a process. It's not an easy process, but the VA has definitely the capacity to do that, right? It's the, the largest single healthcare system in the country, and it takes in $200 billion plus a year. I think it's up to 250 now. Like, it, it's a huge, you know, institution, right? And it also has this massive influence on the rest of medical practice in this country, because something like 60% of the country's doctors basically spend time, uh, you know, in their training or in their practice, um, you know, at a VA facility, right? And if the VA were to change its tune on cannabis and just even develop some standard, you know, like some research standard or some, you know, body of evidence, or excuse me, like, you know, have a committee basically do a report and say, we've, we've reviewed the evidence, right? The, the current research, you know, this has already been done by the National Academy of Sciences, you know, and they, they found it back in 2017, strong and conclusive evidence for cannabis's use, uh, specifically with like multiple, multiple sclerosis, uh, spasticity, um, you know, nausea, like wasting disease. Uh, I think it's called Ketchia. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. And then of, I'm not sure. So I'll take yeah. your word for it. <laughs> right. And then, and then the big, but the big one was chronic pain. Right. And this was, you know, this is in 2017 and people are, this is one of the peaks of the opioid crisis at the time. And it's like, and again, this is like, we're, we're staring an obvious solution and the face when we say we want alternatives to opioids. We want to help the veteran suicide and overdose crisis. You know, we, we, you know, we want new jobs. We, you know, we want to help the environment. Okay. <laughs> Great. <laughs> it's too bad there's if nothing wanted, like that, huh? <laughs> yeah. To, if only there was something literally that could uh, fit all of those roles simultaneously. Oh, huh. well. <laughs> yeah. Too bad, I guess, right? Yeah. I guess we'll, we'll have to spend a lot of time and money on inventing, you know, synthetic, uh, artificial, uh, you know, solutions to those problems rather than just leaning into what we already know. Yeah. Well, so, there's not enough things yeah. to uh, spend our tax dollars on, so <sighs> it's good that we can come up yeah. with a few more. 
<laughs> you know, I started off doing national security work, and that was also very, uh, you know, well, I'm already pretty cynical, but you know, it it, it makes me it, it's definitely made me more so because it's just like, how do you, you you can't challenge the DoD like th- there is no consensus to like even call for a reduction in their in defense spending, and it's 750 billion dollars a year. What is the most ridiculous example of military overspending you've personally seen? <laughs> well, I mean, it's big weapons programs, right? So, I mean, I think the F-35, you know, uh, joint joint strike fighter program, which is currently in development, is probably the best example because it's been in development for 15 years. It's got like a 30-year life cycle. It's going to total more than $1.5 trillion at the 30-year mark. It's already, you know, so it's already eaten hundreds of billions of dollars. And these fighters have never, like... They're just ripe with they're just ripe with problems. Like software seems to be one of the biggest issues because they're expecting these pilots. Uh, like it's a big flying sensor. <laughs> that's like that's basically what these fighters are, and, it, and it's supposed to do all you know like nine, ten different things, of course, which the Department of Defense has never successfully been able to develop like multi-role type type pro weapons. Right. It's like single focus, because when you try to do too many things, then it it, then basically it degrades your ability to do other things (laughs) as effectively. So that and that's that's that is very true, of course, of the Joint Strike Fighter. It tries to do all these things, can't really do any of them very well, but doesn't really matter because there's like 80 congressional districts that are producing parts for this thing. Oh, boy. (laughs) So, yeah. And of course, it's a jobs program. I mean, that's what the Department of Defense has become. Almost, almost half of the budget is in mili- is just in contracting. It's like three hundred plus billion dollars just in contracting funding. It's the most inefficient jobs program in the in the, wor- in the world. Certainly, you know, we spend hundreds of billions. You know, and usually when you see these breakdowns, it's like an education dollar will 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 net you like seven dollars in economic you know benefits, whereas a defense dollar will net you like a dollar thirty. And the national security policy stuff I started off doing was defense budgeting. So because <laughs> my boss at the time, you know, that was his his focus. So, you know, I helped him do research and do writing and stuff around that issue. And this is something you also hear in DC, which is true of every department, but show me your budget and I'll sh- and, sh- and I'll show you your values, right? You know, we the fact that we spend almost a trillion, you know, more than a trillion dollars just on the VA and DOD. Those are two discretionary programs and then Against that, maybe another, you know, a few hundred billion dollars on every other department of the government. Yeah. You know, and that's and of course, we have our non-discretionary spending, which is stuff like Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. Those take trillions of dollars a year. But obviously, those support tens of millions of Americans, at least versus, again, like the Department of Defense, which does not do that. It's a it's a bigger issue, obviously, than just cannabis here. I think veterans need to be stepping up to kind of speak to these truths we've all experienced in one form or another. Right. We can't keep spending on on defense like this for, no, you know, and get nothing in return. We just, you know, we, we pulled out, we just ended, quote unquote, the Af- you know, our war in Afghanistan. Yeah. What did 20 years get us out there? We spent a trillion dollars, you know, hundreds, tens of thousands of people have died, including, you know, thousands of Americans. The country never was at peace. The Soviet uh, Afghan war started in like 79. And basically they've been in constant warfare ever since. Multiple generations have grown up fighting or been uh, surrounded by conflict. Right. And, you know, and, and what and what's what's the life of an Afghan worth, you know, to uh, to a U.S. Congress member or congressperson? Not much. Right. You know, we're we're or, or to the president for that matter. You know, they they dragged their feet till the very last minute to evacuate the thousands of Afghans who had worked with us, whose lives were in danger, active danger. Yeah. The Taliban, you know, have basically just surrounded Kabul, you know, the seat of government. It, it's and that, and it degrades every day. 
you know, they were assassinating pilots. You know, I saw on CNN something that really, you know, that, that triggered me for a minute was watching a bunch of Afghan special forces uh, commandos just get executed point blank by, ta- by the Taliban. Oh my God. Yeah. It's terrible. It is. It's all terrible. Right. And this is, and this is the, you know, and and when people talk about, you know, veterans and things like that, like this stuff is always on my mind. I don't know how to, how it, how, how to make that not the case. Right. And I know I'm not the only one. And I know this is reflected across generations of veterans. I'm sure that there are Vietnam veterans that think about Vietnam every day. Yeah. Veterans. I think, I think our role or the, or the best that we can do, you know, our, our, sec, our real second service in society coming back is, you know, speaking to these things, right? Let, let's acknowledge the trauma that exists in society. Let's acknowledge the trauma that exists in all of us. Let's talk about that. And let's work together to find solutions to these things that don't involve, you know, just fogging out on a fistful of pills until you kill yourself. We know that there are other ways, but of course, Taking these things that we understand at this sort of intuitive or like, let's say, anecdotal level and translating that into policy is is the task. You know, charities get failure of government. Filling gaps that shouldn't be there in the first place. Right. Exactly. I do tons of charity work with Veterans Cannabis Coalition. We organize compassionate donation programs, you know, in, in Southern California. We help support a few hundred veterans a month, you know, with free cannabis. And that's great. But there's 1.6 million vets in California. You know, let's just say 10% of them are, are active cannabis users and another and half of that need need help financially to access that cannabis. Okay, you're still talking tens of thousands. So, you know, I, I understand, I think, you know, maybe more more than most, just sort of how how we are just literally just scratching the surface of these issues. But in my mind anyway, this is my theory of change, right? Like I can't expect people to buy into something that doesn't exist, right? They have to see it with their with their own eyes. They have to see the impact that cannabis medicine has had in the lives of patients and veterans. Again, they're they're some of the most effective messengers because, and I don't count, I don't really count myself in this in this mix. But like some folks have just li- been through literally, you know, the, the trauma train, right? From the service through getting treated, right? Treatment in many cases can be traumatizing, especially tr- uh, surgeries. <laughs> but you know, you know, people have secondary uh, injuries from like their pharmaceuticals as well. Right, their livers, their kidneys, their gastrointestinal tracts—like those, those drugs are not, not uh, are not gentle in most cases. And then we're not even talking about your brain, right? Which is even harder to sort of, sort of gauge, like to, to what extent th- those medications are are helping or harming you, right? It's a, it's obviously really complex and nuanced, and uh, it's frustrating. But what 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 are the lives of all these people worth, right? The, you know the 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 thousands of veterans that will die this year from suicide, the, you know, 92,000 people who died last year from drug overdoses, talking hundreds of thousands. You add alcohol and tobacco associated deaths into that, and we're, we're getting close to a million now, all preventable, right? And, uh, and we got cannabis again, staring us in the face, you know, wrapped up and all these solutions kind of wrapped up very beautifully in this plant, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and it's really now just rallying the will to, to embrace that and to, uh, you know, to realize its potential. I hope we see that happen. What's been your proudest accomplishment with the Veterans Cannabis Coalition? I'd say probably the compassionate donation work. You know, we've got some feathers in our cap, right? You know, we helped move the VA Medicinal Cannabis Research Act through, uh, through the House VA Committee. In 2019, I testified before the House Small Business Committee alongside a few other advocates on basically how prohibition harms everyone and the uh, and the potential of veteran entrepreneurship in the cannabis industry. 
you know, we, there's there's not that many hearings that get held. And so that was nice. But it, it, it's really the compassion work that I think sustains us, you know, helping because this stuff, the other stuff, the, the policy stuff, it's years in the workings. Most cases, you know, it, it takes years to realize a lot of this stuff. Would you mind telling our listeners a, a little bit more about the compassionate donation program? Sure. So in California, where I uh, spend most of my time these days, there is a state law called SB 34. Specifically, it's called the Des Prone and Brownie Mary Act. I mentioned Dennis Prone earlier. And Brownie Mary, also, again, another one of these pioneering cannabis reform advocates who helped pass Prop 215. She got her name Brownie Mary because she made uh, THC brownies for cancer and AIDS patients. Right. And she was a nurse, you know, and she saw, you know, the benefits of cannabis in, the, in these folks' lives. And that's what compelled her as it has, you know, many of us. But after legalization, Prop 64 passing in California, the sort of gray market cannabis basically dried up, right? And that's what a lot of patients were being sustained by. Not to mention, of course, collectives and co-ops got shot down, where you had individuals basically growing for patients, right? You know, they were allowed to, to sell to cover some of their costs, but of course, no one was getting rich doing this. It was one of these things where in the absence of, of clear rules and uh, like a, a, an established supply chain, right, having co-op collective patient grows helped fill a lot of that, you know, fill fill a gap. Um, that, again, disappeared. Yeah. There's some trade-offs, of course, with Prop 64. All adults can now grow six plants. If you're an adult, you can possess up to an ounce cannabis on you at a time. If you've got a medical wreck, you can possess up to eight ounces. Those are very very simple to get still. You know, so we do have some protections, but, you know, the adult use market definitely ushered or, you know, swept away a lot of compassionate work. And now that the legal industry has been in place for a couple of years and Senator Scott Weiner, who introduced SB 34, the, the Compassion Work, Compassion Act back in, I want to say 2017, right? 2018. No, I just want to say 2018. And it was vetoed by Jerry Brown. He reintroduced it once uh, Gavin Newsom became governor, it passed in the fall of 2019, went into effect March 1st, 2020. And uh, with Veterans Cannabis Coalition and, and one of one of our great partners, uh, Shelly McKay, who's a part owner at Cannabis Works, we launched the very first compassion program to our knowledge in the state. So, you know, I had been working with Shelly for a couple months prior to the law going into effect. She had worked and trained the staff to make sure that they knew what they had to do to be compliant with the law. And then, you know, boom, we had product ready to go out. Free, you know, no cost to no cost to vets. And that's opened my eyes a lot to, you know, sort of the potential. And I've kind of carried that on and I've, but I've realized it's, you know, administering a, a large compassion program is not something I can do alone. Mm-hmm. So I've been focused for the last year plus or so on trying to both organize pro-cannabis veteran groups, you know, as well as, uh, you know, pro-cannabis, you know, just other nonprofit groups, uh, specifically normal, so I'm a board member of Los Angeles Normal, and in that capacity, I've been working with LA Normal and you know, and through BCC to start to expand these compassion programs, and hopefully we'll be in a position very soon to roll everything into under a single umbrella, basically create a comprehensive network across Southern California of participating brands, retail locations, and delivery services, community groups, and their members who wish to receive cannabis education and you know free donations for patients in need, right? Combining all of those things into- That's amazing. Yeah, into a seamless, <laughs> there'll be seams, <laughs> but in, into a into a hopefully uh, you know future seamless network where we can at least make sure that, you know, folks aren't falling through the cracks. Let's just, you know, put a tourniquet on this right now. We haven't even stopped the bleeding, let alone, you know, started to really treat the wounds in this case. That is for sure. Eric, why did you decide to move into politics? 
So I came out of the military. I got in at 18. I got out at 25. I went and did another year in Afghanistan as a defense contractor. Of course, I didn't really know what I was going to do out of the military. I thought I was, I thought I actually might have turned it into a career. And then I started smoking cannabis. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and then kind of things took a turn. So I, you know, I decided, okay, I, I do need to go to college. So I went to community college in Long Beach at Long Beach City and then transferred to Berkeley um, for my junior and senior years. And then my last year at Berkeley, I was in DC through a program that they have with the rest of the UC system called UCDC and did an internship at a think tank, which is where I got my first taste of uh, you know, DC politics. My boss slash mentor at the time was the only, <laughs> like the only other veteran in the think tank. <laughs> You're writing in, you know, national security and it's like, really? There, there's literally no one else. Oh who's yeah, that's ever... not great. Huh? <laughs> I'm not saying that has to be a qualifier, but it's like, come on. It helps. Yeah. Like, how do you have any context for half of this shit if you've never done it, right? You know, what the public perception doesn't really reflect the reality of, of a lot of national security defense stuff. And again, unless you're a practitioner in a lot of cases, it's going to be lost on you. And usually it's just how ineffective or how mismanaged things are. Yeah. <laughs> like, the, the, you know, obviously there's there's tons of competent people that, that keep the wheels on the bus, I guess. But for, for all of that, it's like, what you know, again, what are we getting out of any of it? When we get back, I'll be asking Eric about his experience as a political operative in Washington, D.C. But first, it's time to thank our sponsor. Beyond Buds is supported by Peoples. California's leading vertically integrated cannabis company is here to ensure that you can find safe, legal, and affordable cannabis. Whether you're a casual fan of the plant or run your own cannabis business, Peoples has you covered. For business inquiries, you can find Peoples on LinkedIn. your experience interning under Alan Lowenthal? Oh yeah, no, so that was fun. That was uh, that was when I was still uh, in community college and I got to do an internship for a few months and Congressman Lowenthal in his office in Long Beach. Nice. Kind of getting a sense of constituent services. You know, I, I've been in a couple different roles in a congressional office, you know, as an intern, mainly focused on constituents at the district level. And then as a legislative fellow, you know, in Senator Gillibrand's office, working mainly on policy. So you see the sort of dual jobs that members of Congress have, right? They have to respond to their constituents' needs, specifically as it relates to the federal government, right? So a lot of it was helping with VA benefits or Social Security or immigration, right? Federal questions, especially at the constituent level. And then, of course, back in D.C., you know, doing policy and, and that sort of work, you're trying to basically translate what's going on into, like, why does this matter to the state? Why does this matter to the district, you know, from a policy standpoint? It was a good experience seeing at least the taste on both sides because it does show you, you know, sort of how effective people can be in advocacy. Because, like, I knew <laughs> I knew who the effective advocates were because they were the people I talked to more than once. <laughs> right? It's persistence. 
you know, you really have to be a known entity in a lot of cases to, to break through the force field. I mean, because you're not going to be talking to the same person. You know, staff turns over all the time. So the person, the staff member that you're talking to now is, might not be the same staff member in two years. But if all the staff knows who you are and basically like not, not saying you get warned, but, you know, people warned about you. But like, you know, you, people know, it, you know, in the in that office that like you've expressed this interest. Maybe you have some expertise or some, uh, you know, valuable perspective to share. It's a game of relationships, right? Like lobbying is really just sales and you're just selling ideas. Well, I mean, sometimes you're also selling, you know, physical things too, in terms of, you know, what, what could be delivered by legislation, but it is an idea until it's put into effect, right? Everything that we're talking about is, you know, hypothetical or abstract to, to, to some extent. That's also the, a major challenge in policy is like, okay, so we can write this a certain way. Is it going to be implemented that way? And then after, after it's implemented, how is it going to shake out? There, there are always going to be things we're not going to be able to anticipate. So how flexible or adaptable is this piece of legislation or is this particular law or regulation or whatever, right? It, you know, can it, can it change, you know, as new information presents itself, you know, so it can be better? Whatever the goal, whatever the, the goal it's setting out to, to fill anyway. You know, I would suggest that anyone who, who has the time and energy, you know, really try to engage, you know, with your local electeds. The squeaky wheel gets the grease, Right. You know, uh, the closed mouth doesn't doesn't get fed. I got I can do this all day. The aphorisms, uh, you know, but it, all, all those things are true for, for politics. So what are the chances of getting listened to? Small. I'm going to be, be honest with everybody. But the chances of you li- getting listened to if you never speak are zero. So, you know, you want to have a zero chance or, you know, and, and that's and that's really a question of, you know, how deep do you want to do you want to get on a particular issue? You know, cannabis. This has been full time three and a half years now, organizing, lobbying and doing million uh, feels like millions of emails and calls <laughs> it, a lot of talking a lot of talking about the same things over and over to a lot of different people right because you've got to cast a wide net what seems like it's going today might might not be moving tomorrow and you know you got to be ready to move on to other things and have other irons in the fire which you know can get a little overwhelming but again this is something that that we chose so i have no one to complain to really <laughs> Just say, darn eric why are you making me work so hard <laughs> You know, I really try to do the stoic thing. That's good. You know, talking about uh, therapy earlier, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy is a lot of that is based off of uh, stoic philosophy in terms of just how you categorize and how you react to things. Right. You know, what's in what's within your control? Very little. Right. But but there are some things. And, you know, the the primary thing being, you know, how you react to outside events. I, I think so many people feel overwhelmed because they feel like they have no control again, which is mostly true. <laughs> it's sort of a weird line to walk where it's like you, you acknowledge what, where you where you can do work and you acknowledge where you can't. Mm-hmm. And really focusing on where what you can do is the most empowering thing possible because it's like you start small, you know, under promise, over deliver, right? And you make mistakes and you fail and you, you know, things don't work out, but you keep going. And and it, this has been my, my experience for the most part, at least people notice, right? People, people can get that vibe. People hear, you know, hear the passion when you talk, you know, and, and while people will say they want to help, very few will actually, but those few can still make a tremendous difference. I always say it's like if I had funding and like five good advocates, right, I could, I could get some laws passed. It, it's, it's a question of, you know, resources and time and, you know, talent, but, you know, all of those things are available. And of course, you know, we're, we're lucky being in cannabis in that there are so many talented people that have come into this space or that were always in this space 
but were never really given the time of day because they were engaged in what well, at the time, <laughs> you know, was an illicit industry. And now it's you know, quasi legal, at least. And the passion is really inspiring. The knowledge that people have been giving away freely in this industry for decades is incredible. Right. Talking about giving away, you know, not just in knowledge, but actual product, right? Mm-hmm. That too. NorCal Emerald Triangle farmers were selling their packs out east, you know, for thousands of dollars a pound, but they were just turning around and giving away hundreds of pounds as well to patients in need. And uh, genetics cuts to other small farmers. Right. You know, I, I would love to read those books when they get written. You're really just talking about hundreds, maybe a few thousand individuals who kind of defined this thing, right? What, what was NorCal farming? It's not like, you know, there's never been that many people living up there at any given time. And a lot of them were vets. A lot of, you know, I've, I've encountered a lot of vets, especially Vietnam vets who came back and basically retreated. You know, they bought land, homesteaded up there, grew weed, and they made their way that way. They didn't really want to engage with society. They kind of drew their barriers around farming and around, you know, around the plant. And for them, that saved their lives, I'm almost sure. And of course, veterans were not the only farmers, but so many people basically came to cannabis, especially in the Emerald Triangle, to my understanding, sort of in that way, right? They were they were pursuing alternatives to what society was offering at the time. So cannabis has always been that, right? It's always been, at least in the United States, a you know sort of alternative to what you were being presented with, right? Both in lifestyle, as a business, and certainly as a medicine. And it served so many people so well, despite every effort by every level of government for, you know, decades now to try to eradicate it, to try to, you know, punish people for using it and brutalize people over it. It never made a dent for for all the lives ruined over criminalizing it. It never stopped in a single person from smoking it. What do you think the purpose of the war on drugs is? So Nixon is considered, you know, having started the drug war. John Ehrlichman, who was a Nixon aide at the time, basically said, we went after the war on drugs because it was a way to criminalize our opponents, right? We wanted to go after what he said, the anti-war left and the civil rights movement. And he said, well, you know, we couldn't go after them for their political speech because that's protected. What we could do was go after them for drugs. So we associated the anti-war left with cannabis and we associated the civil rights movement with heroin. And we criminalized heavily and then used all of the power of government, you know, to basically control people on the basis of arbitrarily banning certain substances, disrupting their ability to dissent and question what was, I think we all look back on <laughs> as like sort of un- inarguably corrupt or malicious acts by the state, right? Yeah. That's what it is. And it's, you know, it's always been that way, right? It's from, at least in terms of criminalization, it's been a way to steal from the public. It's been a way to, you know, control certain, certain groups, but basically harm everyone in the process, right? No one has benefited other than the, the real profiteers out there from prohibition. The drug testing and, you know, just prisons in general. <laughs> and every company that uses prison labor. Oh, yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, talk, right. This is why the post-civil rights era mass incarceration gets called the new Jim Crow. Because, of course, the 13th Amendment didn't actually abolish slavery. It only abolished slavery outside of prisons. We now, you know, employ prison labor. And, they, and of course, because we're kind of going through this quote-unquote labor shortage, they're, they're trying to lean on prison labor even more. Right. I explain why they're trying to send inmates back, right, who had been on uh, compassionate release because the prisons had filled up with COVID infections. Oh, man. This, this is my problem in that, <laughs> like, I, I look around and it's like, it's just injustice everywhere, right? And, it, you know, it's just like, okay. Well, no, everything's terrible. <laughs> this is where you kind of have to, you know, go back and recenter yourself. Otherwise, you'll just, you know, uh, burn out and be depressed and apathy will win and they will win. 
right? We get this shotgun blast of information at all times nowadays, and most of it's bad. Environmental collapse, right? Obviously, you know, longstanding civil rights, uh, you know, racial injustice issues, uh, you know, not to mention just your general stuff, which is just all, all you know, ever present. And it's just like, okay, huh, where do I turn? And it's like, okay, entertainment, right? You know, escape. You need that. We need that. Like, there, there's no question. We need relaxation. We need disconnection from this constant barrage of negativity. But at the end, that recharge is basically to re-prepare you to go back out and face it. There's no getting out of this fight. You're in it. Like, we're all in it. You know, we might not think of it that way, but, you know, th- this is not something that, uh, you know, we're going to win or lose by our individual effort here. Uh, when I say win or lose, I'm just talking about getting society to a better place, making it more equitable, making it less <laughs> less arbitrary, at least, in how it treats people, especially people who use drugs, right? And not just cannabis, but all drugs. I'm a big fan of cannabis largely because, you know, it seems to do so much at such so low risk. But that doesn't mean that there's no room for risky drugs in the way that, that we treat ourselves, right? It's just understanding the risks, minimizing the risks, using it as safely as possible and as safe a manner as possible. We've been hypocrites about these issues for a long time, and I'm hoping that cannabis has sort of broken that dam and you see the plant-based psychedelics, even you know synthetics like MDMA and ketamine, you know, following very close behind in terms of reassessing how we think and talk about these things. And understanding that whatever dare or sane BS that you got fed as a kid does not apply here. We allow adults to do incredibly risky, dangerous things to themselves all the time. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Right. We don't throw people in jail for skydiving. Usually we don't throw people in jail for speeding unless it's excessive. There's all of these things that we acknowledge are risky or, you know, have some danger associated with it. But of course, that behavior is not criminalized. Drugs, of course, have been one of the biggest exceptions, and that's just because it's an easy way to divide, right? You self-identify by using a drug. If it's a drug the government doesn't like, well, it's very easy then to go after you. Mm. That's been our history, but it, I don't think it has to be that way. Millions of people have already you know, changed that. You know, we've got 19 states that have, adult, that have legalized adult-use cannabis. It's 140 million people now in this country live in places where adults can, you know, are no longer criminalized and can find places to purchase legal, safe cannabis. <laughs> it's a good start. It's a great start. As cannabis prohibition comes down in the United States, like that's what I'm really excited about because we are basically the enforcers of the world's drug prohibition, particularly with cannabis. So bringing it down in the U.S. basically pulls the biggest foundation away from this global ban that you basically see. So again, we're going to be called hypocrites and outside of our uh, our treaty obligations or whatever, you know, but it's like, who's going to enforce that? The UN? <laughs> right. No, I mean, we, we, we fought, we... We, li- we pay attention, we, you know, we follow uh, international treaties when it suits us. <laughs> when it comes to drug laws, we created most of that, the provisions of these treaties that we're party to. We were largely the ones who put them in place in the first place. That's part of the process too, right? Like you've got to change the international law. We're party to all these things that theoretically bind us from really maximizing and fully utilizing all of these drugs that have been banned and restricted for so long. Do you think all drugs should be legalized? I think so. I don't know how the logic works otherwise. We went through this with alcohol, right? We prohibited alcohol, excuse me, on the basis of very good arguments, right? The tolerance movement had a lot of great points that they made. Hey, you know, people are dying of overconsumption. Domestic violence was just off the charts because of alcohol abuse or alcohol misuse or overconsumption. The basis of that was pretty strong, but then they created organized crime almost overnight. Like the mafia, the Italian mafia, or whatever we call it back in you know the, those days, Al Capone, early days of prohibition, 
Prohibition created the income stream for these organized crime outfits to actually organize. Mm -hmm. You know, without the money coming from Prohibition, they would not be able to do what they did. And, you know, in the process, of course, they massively undermined public trust in the law. They corrupted law enforcement left and right. Mm -hmm. On the public health side, with Prohibition, you have a poison drug supply, right? Because you no longer had, you know, accountable theoretically safe manufacturers of alcohol anymore who had people distilling gin in their bathtub and then selling that and going blind because they, they drank methanol, right? Wood alcohol, which is one of the most common contaminants in bootleg booze back in the day, right? No, who, who's dying from methanol poisoning anymore? No one, right? They're dying from alcohol related deaths, certainly, but they're not dying from that specific <laughs> alcohol contaminated death. So let's take heroin now, which is probably one of the more, uh, you know, people feel all types of ways about heroin. Whatever you think about heroin, safe heroin is better than fentanyl contaminated heroin, right? Which is essentially what the market is now dominated by. Real pills are better than, you know, fentanyl pressed into sugar, which is currently what's dominating the market. Yeah. People have been able to use opioids, especially in a clinical setting, for decades without risking overdose, fatal overdose. Fentanyl basically ruins that equation. People don't know what they're using anymore, right? And the strength of fentanyl basically makes any any misjudgment in the dose that you give yourself a potentially fatal one. So what, what would we prefer? Would we prefer a safe supply, safe consumption, you know, like, like they're doing in some cities in the United States? Or would, would we prefer what we have, 92,000 drug overdose deaths? advocate for cannabis? Join your local chapter of Normal today. Joining Orange County Normal only costs $20 and brings you into a community of dedicated activists working to end cannabis stigma and expand access to everyone who needs it. To find your own local chapter, visit normal.org. That's N-O-R-M-L dot org. So this is something I heard a lot. Uh, I had a close personal friend pass away of an overdose due to tainted drugs. And a lot of people were not very sympathetic because they didn't think that she should have been doing that in the first place. What do you say to people um, who have that kind of response to deaths by drug users? Yeah. Certain kinds of drugs get stigmatized. Others are accepted. Mm -hmm. You know, if she had died because she got like contaminated insulin or something along those lines, there would be massive sympathy. But because she, she used another contaminated drug, this is the other thing. Who are we, right? Like, do I know this person's life? No, right? Do I know all the circumstances that might have led them to, you know, to, to pick a certain drug to use? No. Do I know how they're using it? Like, that's the thing, like Prince or Tom Petty. Well, I think it's, it's more so Prince. But like Prince is a great example, right? Prince had been using opioids for a while, right? Like when Prince overdosed, that was not the first time he had used opioids, but he had been using them safely until he had gotten a fentanyl contaminated dose. People can safely use drugs. That's not the question. It's like, why do we expose people to such unnecessary risk simply because we're arbitrarily saying this drug is bad, but this drug is fine? Like, why do we even tolerate tobacco use in this country, really? 
right? And alcohol use for that matter. Zero medical benefit costs the public hundreds of billions of dollars a year in deaths and lost productivity and medical costs and law enforcement costs and all sorts of stuff. And yet those industries exist. They don't even make enough money to break even with the amount that it costs the public. That's the other thing, right? It's a net negative what the alcohol and tobacco industry bring into our society. I would still never prohibit it. You educate your way out of that. You provide people with better, safer alternatives, right? Instead of saying, I'm going to prohibit alcohol and tobacco, I'm going to say, well, listen, I'm going to educate people about these other substances that aren't going to carry the same risks, that hopefully are going to provide a similar benefit to what they're getting out of alcohol and tobacco. If you want to consume nicotine, vape, right? If you want to use heroin, like you need a, you need a safe supply. And these are things, that, of course, that we accept in so many other circumstances and yet you know, kind of draw this line and say, well, yes, obviously bars and restaurants can serve alcohol. People need a place to drink. <laughs> but no, no heroin, no methamphetamine, no cocaine, you know, depending on where you are, no cannabis. From the church to, uh, to you know, to Capitol Hill, to the business place, right? People have been anti-drug in this country while also using massive amounts of drugs. That's the other thing. <laughs> All these people that criticize, I'm like, listen, if you're a real teetotaler, if you've never smoked a cigarette, you've never drank a beer, you know, if you've never used caffeine in any form, maybe you've got some, I don't know, some grounds to like criticize other people. But even then, no, you don't, right? Because again, it's not your life. You know, you, you are not living in their shoes. I just assume mo- everyone's carrying around trauma. So I never question why people use drugs. Like, why do I use drugs? Caffeine, cannabis, THC and CBD. And, you know, occasionally I'll have a a drink. Why do I use those drugs? Well, caffeine helps me, you know, stay up, get alert in the mornings. You know, it helps me focus. Cannabis, well, it helps me do a lot, you know, helps for a lot of things. Mainly sleep and pain, though. Alcohol, eh, you know, occasionally, you know, have a few drinks with friends in a social setting. Maybe there's some benefit there. The reality, though, is that I have a very clear reason as to why I use these drugs. And everybody who uses drugs does. And I think we just all need to practice a lot more in extending that grace to other people, right? And to not immediately jump to judgment. I mean, imagine if they applied that kind of logic to veteran suicide, right? It's like, oh, you had all these, you know, look, you had therapy, you had drugs, you had, you know, all these resources available to you. You know, why did you, why did you, uh, or I just can't, can't interrogate a dead person, but, you know, why did you die by suicide, right? Or condemning someone for dying by suicide. We are, we are so quick to, to judgment, so slow to empathize. And that's where a lot of people argue, you know, the need for cannabis and psychedelics especially is to, you know, to help reawaken that in some people. Yeah. It's really hard to, to have a functioning society when there's no trust, when everybody's at each other's throats, and when we can't even agree on, like, basic facts, you know, and, and, and that's kind of where we are in certain in certain areas. Yeah. I definitely count myself lucky that at least I get to operate in California, which is ahead of the ahead of the game in a lot of ways. You know, we could potentially do things out here and doing it, do them at scale, you know, the 40 million people, fifth largest economy in the world, right? California's got some weight. What we can do and what we especially what we can accomplish out here can lead the world, certainly the country, as it as it's happened in the past. And where does that change start? It always starts at the bottom. We we've got such such amazing power, you know, as, as humans, just in general, right? Like we're capable of it, of literally anything, it seems <laughs> good and bad. Right. And I, and I stay optimistic because of that, right? Because I know nothing lasts forever. But the way that we structure our society, the way that we govern ourselves, a lot of that's arbitrary can be changed, right? It is not set in stone, right? There's not divine or natural law that is guiding that, right? That is simply a choice and we can make a different choice. Just like with cannabis, just like with psychedelics, just like with other drugs, just like with, you know, any number of things, we can make other choices. 
uh, we really have to get, a, get away from this idea that A, we have no power and B, there is no alternative. Yeah. What would you say to a listener who wants to get involved in this space? There's a lot of uh, a lot of great organizations working in this. In general, nationally, I would say Drug Policy Alliance, National Normal. They definitely are, are among the, the top leading organizations, I, I think, as far as like cannabis goes, especially when it comes to advocating for patients, you know, and consumers. There's a lot of organizations that cover the business side, which is great. But, you know, there, there are there are the, the folks who are trying to look out for the little guy in this case are, are fewer and far between. Mm-hmm. So on the compassion side, a lot of great organizations, Weed for Warrior Project, Operation EVAC, Deer Cannabis, Sweet Leaf Collective. Most of those groups are in the Bay Area. A lot of them also have other operations in, in other parts of the state. They're always looking for volunteers and, and help, especially if you're connected with the cannabis industry, especially if you can help put product into the hands of patients in some way or another, help facilitate that in some way. So SB 34 is as healthy as the industry's contribution to it, if that makes any sense. As an advocate, I can't buy product, you know, wholesale or anything. I can buy from the retail, kind of defeats the purpose. You know, I can't, I can't really do a lot to, to move stuff myself. It all has to happen behind the glass among people who are working in the industry and working for these companies. If you have any connection with the cannabis industry and you have, you know, some interest in doing compassion work, those groups, as well as, of course, uh, Veterans Cannabis Coalition in Southern California and the Southern California chapters of Normal, Los Angeles, Orange County, Inland Empire, and San Diego. And I hope we'll have some uh, announcements here soon and been working on some reorganization here and trying to get everybody on the same page. And we're all pulling in the same direction, especially when it comes to SB 34, so we can really start to better manage and expand and sustain compassionate donations throughout SoCal. I've staked out the lower half of the state, like the nine southern counties of the state, <laughs> and just that twenty million. Oh, only twenty million. Essentially. <laughs> oh, okay. So, oh, in that case, <laughs> only twenty million. Yeah. So we're building out donations across all nine counties in Southern California, from uh, Ventura and San Bernardino South. But this is definitely going to be one of these things that's that's going to reflect the contributions of, of folks and pretty much everyone I work with, right? And we're all volunteers, right? I don't get paid for any of this. Not yet. The, the stuff that they're doing for on the compassion side, it's all uncompensated. And we're all, you know, the industry is basically giving away money and we're giving away labor. Well, they're giving away labor too, I should say. And together, we're, we're able to put those two, those resources together and deliver medicine to patients, which I think everybody can get behind, you know, and, and I would say that that's probably one of the biggest areas that people would could participate and also see like the good of their work. I can tell you to call your congressman, you know, or your congressperson or, you know, your other elected officials all day, you know, do that too. (laughs) I'm not saying don't do that, but like get involved with the community, get involved with the compassion community, especially. And I think those things were kind of flow naturally. Where can our listeners go to get more involved with the Veterans Cannabis Coalition? On the World Wide Web at uh, Veterans Canna Coalition, C-A-N-N-A. VeteransCannaCoalition.org. And on IG and Facebook, we are at Veterans Canna Coalition. On Twitter, those are pretty much our, our main channels. We also have a call to action tool for the MORE Act currently. So if you do want to contact your member of Congress, you can text VCC to 52886 and you'll receive a link. It'll take you to our little action page. And then from there, you can enter your zip code and it'll direct you to your member of Congress. And uh, you can use a form letter that we've already prepared or you write your own. These are kind of small things, but, you know, small things build into bigger things. Cannabis and the cannabis community have always sustained themselves on, on the volunteer labor of a lot of folks. That's for sure. Eric, where can our listeners go to hear more from you? 
I do public speaking from time to time, but I'm not really doing a lot of podcasts or anything at the, at the moment. But yeah, I guess look, look for uh, look for Los Angeles normal public events, SoCal normal events. And uh, I mean, if you want to watch my testimony of uh, the House Committee, it's on YouTube. <laughs> nice. That's great. I guess. Yeah. So I speak on this a lot, but for the most part, I like to put other other folks up out front. I get tired of hearing my own voice. About this stuff. <laughs> Is there anything else you wanted to say before we signed off? Yeah, just uh, leave you with like a like a daily affirmation. You know, don't don't succumb to apathy. You know, re- remember that you have control, yeah, at least over the way you react to things, and try to center center yourself on doing good for others. That's helped me with with quite a few things, and I I, I hope that might uh, might be helpful for others too. <laughs> Any stoic book or essay recommendations? Ryan Holiday. So I think uh, he's a he's a modern author who's who's kind of taken a done a review of a lot of Stoic literature. He's got like a Stoic guide out there. Not that I've read that. I've tried to stick to the to the OGs. So I don't know if you want to dig up Marcus Aurelius's uh, Meditations or gotta uh, hear it from the horse's mouth. <laughs> Seneca. Seneca. Uh, yeah, there's a handful of like classic Greek and Roman philosophers who basically contributed to the Stoic school of thought over hundreds of years. So it's a deep body of work, and there's a lot there. I think that people, especially modern, you know, even people in the modern day can identify with. Thanks to all our buds for joining us on this journey. Links to all organizations mentioned and some free resources on Stoic philosophy too are in the show notes. Subscribe and turn on notifications so you don't miss our next episode when I speak to Andrew Pham about cannabis DUIs and medicated pho. He's a cannabinoid researcher and lab director, but more importantly, he's really, really good at explaining all the stuff about weed that's hard to understand. See you then.